I love that song. Amen, huh? All right. So we got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So y'all listen quick. Um, There is a lot of stuff in these last seven verses of Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to do my best to cover it, but let me encourage you to take notes. Uh, I just want to say, I used to have this silly thought that if I asked you to take notes, that would be a little uh, self-aggrandizing. It'd be like, I'm going to say something worthwhile. Well, if I'm not going to say something worthwhile, you need to get a different preacher, right? So (laughs) we're going to, if you'll take notes, you'll have a shot at remembering some of what this is, because this is, there's a lot of information today. All right, last week we looked at Daniel's prayer. Today we're going to look at God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Now, the angel is going to come to him and he's going to say, look, there's some good news and some bad news. The good news is that the Babylonian captivity is almost over. That 70 years of captivity is coming to an end. The bad news is there's another 70 times 7 years to go before God accomplishes everything he wanted to accomplish. The Babylonian captivity did cure the Jews of their idolatry. Well, at least their crass form of idolatry where you have a piece of wood or a piece of metal that you bow down to. Now, it it didn't permanently cure uh, the Jews or anybody else of their idolatry because the heart of man is an idol factory. But it did at least cure them of that crass form of idolatry. Now, Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is what we're going to look at today. So let me uh, ask you to turn there or look at the screen. Starting in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening service. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right. Uh, One of the commentators I read said, this is the most difficult passage in Daniel. Another said, this is the most difficult passage in the Old Testament. (laughs) I have never run across anything more difficult. God is ready. I want us to see this. God is ready and even eager to answer the right kind of prayer from his servant. Now, I chose those words carefully. The right kind of prayer and from his servant. What is the right kind of prayer? Well, we looked at this last week, so we'll just recap. Prayers of faith, humility, 
and confession that are centered around bringing glory to God, those are the right kinds of prayers. Uh, Let me point out to you some things in those verses we read. In verse 20, he said, while I was speaking and praying, talking about God being anxious to answer these prayers. Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer. Verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Do you see how it appears that God is eager to answer the prayers of his servants? Now, the his servant part of that is is, uh, important as well as the right kind of prayer. Now, I said last week that lost people do a lot of praying, and they do. Lost people do a lot of praying. You know, you've heard there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Well, there's probably no such thing as an atheist taking a test at school either. I mean, lost people do a lot of praying. God will answer the prayer of a lost person if he is seeking salvation and forgiveness. You know, if your enemy on the battlefield comes to you and says, I want to surrender, I want an unconditional surrender, then you're going to listen to that guy, right? You're going to take him in, you're going to listen to that. But if your enemy on the battlefield comes to you and says, I've got no intention of surrendering, but I'm running low on ammunition and and troops, so can I borrow some? That's totally different, right? (laughs) So God is far too wise, far too wise to give his power and authority to rebels, okay? But his servant who is praying for his glory, he is eager to answer that prayer. Now, we need to make sure that we are on his side when we pray. We don't need to try to get God on our side. Um, You know, you you remember Joshua, when he met up with the angel of the Lord? He said to the angel, he said, are you for us or for them? And what the angel said, he said, nope. (laughs) He said, I'm here as leader of my own army, right? So sometimes we'll think of a good idea and we'll get on that train and we'll say, God bless us, please bless us, please bless us, because we think this is a good idea. What we need to do is make sure we get on God's page. Now, I've heard preachers say that kind of thing, and I go, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you do that? (laughs) Let me tell you specifically how to do that. You look at what the revealed will of God is, the command of God, and you obey it. That is how you make sure that you're on the same page with God. We're talking about, well, we're putting a campus down south to reach more people. How do I know that's on the same page with God? Well... Because godly men and women around me have said, we feel good about this. We believe that the Spirit is telling us to go there. God's opened doors for us. And because we're doing it for the explicit purpose of reaching more people for the kingdom of God. That's being on his page, not just trying to get him on ours. Now Daniel in verse 23 is told by the angel Gabriel Look, as soon as you started praying, I was sent out because you are greatly loved. Man, what could be better than the angel Gabriel telling you God loves you a whole lot and he sent me to tell you some stuff. Let me ask you, whose love and esteem are you working for? Uh, You probably can't be greatly loved by the world and by God at the same time. This needs to be okay with you. You know, the world crucified our master who we try to imitate. And then we're surprised when the, when the world doesn't love us. Do you expect them to love you? No, they're not going to. It's not likely anyway. In spite of that, we need to love them. That is why, you know, I told you a few weeks ago that Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse went up to New York City and put up a field hospital at great risk to them health-wise and great cost to them expense-wise. 
And as soon as the, the officials in New York City decided they weren't going to have their hospitals overwhelmed, they said, you bigoted bunch of people need to get out of New York because you don't represent us. But the reason that Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse would probably go back to New York next week if they needed them is because they don't do it for the love and the applause of the world. They do it to honor their Savior. Now, is that fair? No. It's grace, which is much better. You know, we don't uh, want God to give us what's fair, right? We want Him to give us grace. And in that same way, we're told to show grace to the world, even when they despise us and don't appreciate us. Showing grace to those who don't deserve it can make you bitter, but don't let it. Because the, the great thing is, if you'll, if you'll get along with God and you'll pray, you'll read the scriptures, you'll realize that really you're imitating Christ by giving people what they don't deserve and lavishing grace on them. And that's, that's the only way I think we can keep from getting bitter. Now let's talk about this really difficult passage of the 70 weeks. The first 69 weeks we read about in Daniel 9.24, it says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. All right, so there's some objectives here that he wants to happen. Now it says a week. What's a week? A week is seven days. We learned that when we were in kindergarten, right? (laughs) We even learned the days of the week. I remember teaching them to my children. Uh, But this word week here, it would be a lot more clear if it said uh, group of seven. You know, like our word dozen means a group of 12, right? So if I told Jimmy, hey, my birthday is in December and I know you want to get me a present, I'd like a dozen. He'd be going, a dozen what? Do you want eggs or donuts or dollars? What do you want, right? And so it's a group of 12. And so this word week means a group of seven, and that's all it means, so it doesn't mean days. As a matter of fact, here it's speaking of years. So if you say there's 70 groups of seven, you math folks know that that's 490 years, right? Now, when I saw this, I thought immediately my mindset went to a figurative number because of this. When Jesus is talking about forgiving people, he says, don't forgive them seven times, forgive them 70 times seven. And none of us believes that Jesus wants us to forgive people 490 times, but the 491st time we don't have to forgive them, right? So naturally I thought, okay, well this is symbolic. But then I kept reading and I kept studying and I changed my mind. Let's look at the purposes of these 490 years. The first is to finish the transgression. The 70 years of the Babylonian captivity pretty much cured the the Jews of that crass idolatry, but it didn't cure them of Israel's rebellion against God completely. That rebellion against God by the Israelites would reach its zenith at the crucifixion of Christ. You know, Jesus told a parable that sums this up. In Matthew 21, 33 through 40, he said, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This is Israel's history with the prophets that God sent them. And again, he sent other servants or prophets 
more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have, the, have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now Jesus is talking about his reception in the world and God sending prophet after prophet who was not listened to, who was abused, who some of them were martyred. And then he said, and then as his son, I get sent and what's going to happen to me? They're going to kill me. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? Jesus leaves us with. Now, eventually there will be an end to the rebellion of the people of of, uh, Israel toward God. Uh, we, we get that good news in Romans eleven twenty five through 27. It says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come to Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So eventually the people of Israel will be reconciled to God. The second goal that we find is to put an end to sin. Now let me ask you, has Jesus put an end to sin? Well, not not finally and fully, right? Because there's still sin. But he has broken the back of the enemy. He has won the victory at Calvary, but there are still skirmishes going on. Christ's victory is won, but we haven't seen the final end to sin. We'll see that when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. The third goal is to atone for iniquity. At Calvary, Jesus atoned for the sins of both the Jews and the Gentiles and bought for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He paid the debt for my sin, as we heard sung about a few moments ago. He substituted himself for me. He took my death that I might partake in his life. You know the song, All I Have is Christ, that we sing sometimes. It says, He bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. The fourth goal is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now this is the fulfillment of the kingdom that we saw in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. You know, the Son of Man came to the... Ancient of days and was presented before him. And verse 14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the new doxology that we sang a few moments ago, we said that his kingdom will never end. We're told that in Daniel 7. Now the fifth thing that was to be accomplished is to seal both vision and profit. Now when we want to preserve something, we we seal it up, right? Now this prophecy is looking really long term. This, This stuff was written hundreds of years before Christ came the first time. And all 70 weeks, when you look at all 70 of them, they still haven't finished. Now, the first 69, I believe, have finished, but the seventh one still hasn't finished. So this was a very long-term prophecy. And the sixth thing that was to be accomplished was to anoint the most holy place. Now, place isn't in the Hebrew. Um, So I don't know really what this most holy thing is, 
Uh, I've got some guesses. It may be a temple that was future to the prophet. It may be a reference to Jesus who spoke of himself and his body as the temple. He said, look, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, right? It may be the church that he's speaking of. But anyway, to anoint a most holy something. So these six goals, have they all been accomplished? Well, we just saw not fully, not completely, right? That indicates to me that these 70 weeks must in some way extend all the way to the second coming of Christ to set up his eternal and righteous kingdom. Daniel 9.25 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, And weeks is period of seven, right? So... Not actual weeks, but there shall be seven groups of seven. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Now, I like the ESV, the English Standard Version is what I normally preach out of. It's extremely accurate. Uh, The Psalms are still pretty. I just like it. But let me tell you, this verse in the ESV is not great. Let me tell you why. Now, this is going to take a second, so zone in, zone in with me. It looks here from the English that there are going to be seven weeks, then Messiah, then 62 weeks, right? Let me read it to you one more time now that I've, uh, hopefully I've caught your attention. <laughs> Therefore, know and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So, right, it looks like in the English here, we got seven weeks, then Messiah, then another 62 weeks. This is better in uh, actually every other version. (laughs) The NASB says this, Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in a troubled time. The King James Version says, oh, did I skip something? No, okay. The King James Version says, um, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build up Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. So he's saying seven weeks and 62 weeks, right? So every other version and the Greek, I mean, and the Hebrew, give us the impression that there are going to be 69 weeks in total before Messiah comes. All right, now here comes a whole lot of educated conjecture, okay? <laughs> Which is the best, uh, best I can do. But I did study this a lot. So here is one uh, theory of what all this may mean. I believe the word that went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was the authorization by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah that happened in the year 444 B.C. We can read about this in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read part of that. In the month of Nisan, okay, remember that month of Nisan, that's going to be very important later. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had, been, now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? 
Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him time. From the time of this authorization until the completion of the restoration of the city was the first seven weeks or 49 years. All right, so that is the monumental thing that occurred during the first seven weeks. The city was built back. The temple was restored. All that stuff was ready to go again. Ezra 4, 7 to 23 tells of some of the troubles that they experienced because the Dan- Daniel prophesies that it'll be rebuilt in a troubled time. I'm not going to read that to you, but if you are taking notes, you can look at that when you get home. It's Ezra 4, 7 through 23. All right, so that's the first seven weeks. Now we're on to the next 62 weeks. This is the time between the rebuilding of the city after the first seven weeks until the coming of Messiah, 62 weeks 62 times 7 is another 434 years. Now i got a weird question. <laughs> Alright, how long is a year? Well, you and I think a year is 365 and a quarter days, right? Because we use uh, a modified Julian calendar, uh, and so we understand that. But the Jews did not uh, use the same calendar that we use. They had 12 months of 30 days each. They were on a lunar calendar. So if you do 12 months of 30 days each, you get 360 days per year. Now I'm not, it sounds like I'm trying to fit a square peg in a round hole to make some prophecy work out, but that's really not what we're doing here. We reckon time based on a different calendar than they used. So if we're going to get in sync with them, We've got to translate, right? I mean, that's why we translate the Hebrew into English, (laughs) so we can be speaking on the same terms. So this is a translation of their years and our years that I'm about to go through. The Julian calendar was not in effect until 45 BC, and our current Gregorian calendar, which is a, uh, a slight change to the Julian calendar to make it slightly more accurate, was not around until the year 1582 AD, right? So we just reckon our calendar differently. The question, though, is how does the Bible reckon years? And we can find out one place from the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The next one I want to read is Revelation 12, 14. It says, But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent, into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Now, this is talking about the same woman fleeing into the wilderness. And one place it says there's going to be a time, times and half a time, which we see is three and a half years. In the other place it says 1,260 days. So, if you look at that, three and a half years is 42 months. 42 months of 30-day increments is 1,260 days. I really hope you're not asleep and you're following me. Are you with me? (laughs) Okay. So we see that the Jews were talking about these 30-day months. Now, the total 69 weeks of years 
is 483 years of 360 days per year. All right? That's equal to 173,880 days. If you want to put that in our modern years, you have to divide that number of days by 365 and a quarter. That way it'll make sense to us and go along with our calendar. That gives you 476 solar years. Now why do we need to convert it? Like I said, because we want to talk about apples and apples, not apples and oranges. Because if we do apples and oranges, we'll get confused. So we have to translate it into the way we reckon years. And when we do that, you can go, who cares? This is not math class. You're right, but here's why we care. If you take the authorization of Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in the month of Nisan in 444 B.C., and go forward 476 solar years, you arrive at the year 33 A.D. The most reasoned and best guess that I have read concerning the date of the crucifixion is April 3rd, A.D. 33, which is the 14th day in the month of Nisan. God prophesied to Daniel to the very month and day when the Messiah would arrive. Have you ever read in the New Testament and Jesus is baffled at why these people don't expect him and don't recognize him? That's why. <laughs> because Daniel told them, until Messiah comes, it said anointed one. Anointed one is the, the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Daniel tells us to the month. Now we don't know the day that Artaxerxes made this decree. We know the month though. <laughs> and to the very month, there appears Jesus. Now, like I said, we don't know the exact day, but my guess is that day corresponded with the day of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Daniel 9.26. Now, we're going to take a verse at a time because these are, are uh, rich with meaning. Daniel 9.26 says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So right after the 62 weeks, the anointed one, or Messiah, will be cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. After these 62 weeks, they follow on the heels of the seven weeks. So after these 69 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now who's the anointed one? Well, the Hebrew word uh, Messiah or Mishai is, uh, is transliterated Messiah, and, but its meaning is anointed one, and he's going to be cut off. The King James and the NASB, NASB just write the word Messiah. Being cut off is a reference to Christ's crucifixion and his death. Now, this is not too hard to figure out. If you say the Messiah is going to be cut off, we in the New Testament go, okay, I get that. That's about Christ's death. But what is this business about and shall have nothing? I think there, for the, for the first time, we see uh, that there's not going to be the ultimate coming of the kingdom immediately. Uh, I believe this is a glimpse into the fact that the Son of Man who is to be given this glorious eternal kingdom that we saw in Daniel 7 will not immediately be reigning over that kingdom. You know, most scholars believe that the eternal kingdom of righteousness would be ushered in by the first coming of the Messiah. But here I believe we get a glimpse that there will be a delay. So 
for this ultimate act of betrayal against God, we read that the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, I believe this can only refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that took place in 70 AD, which we see was to follow the first 69 weeks and the death or cutting off of Messiah. Now, it's important for us to see that there's apparently a break between the 69th and 70th week because it says the first 69 weeks, this stuff's going to happen. Then the Messiah is going to be cut off and the people of the prince to come are going to destroy things, destroy the temple. And then later it talks about the 70 weeks. So I don't think we're going back and reading in a gap. I think there's a gap presented clearly in the text. We're told that after 62 weeks, this other stuff's going to happen. So then we get to the final week, all right? The final verse of the chapter deals with the 70th and final week, and that's chapter 9, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now it says a strong covenant. Apparently the Antichrist, who is the one speaking here, the one who is going to make this covenant, the Antichrist will either convince or coerce Israel into some kind of treaty or alliance. Now this is certainly speculation, um, but I believe that the Antichrist will convince many that he is the Christ. Antichrist doesn't mean just against Christ. It can mean in place of Christ. And so he's going to set himself up in place of the real Christ and have a following that believes he is indeed the Messiah. Then we're told that he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. Again, this implies to me that he he may be claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah and be talking about the the messianic law, uh, you know, the mosaic law as it pertains to the Messiah and the elements of temple sacrifice. The establishment of this covenant may be by his fooling many into thinking that he's the Messiah and following him. That may be how he persuades them to make that treaty as he is able to reinstitute the temple sacrifice that's been missing. All right, so listen, Judaism hasn't had temple sacrifice since the year 70, right? So if there was a guy that came back and said, I'm the Messiah, to prove I'm the Messiah, I'm going to reinstitute temple sacrifice and temple worship. I'm going to get your temple back. We're going to reclaim the temple mount and we're going to have sacrifices again. That would be a strong argument and a strong persuasion for them to go, okay, let's follow this guy. If my speculation is correct, the Antichrist will be able to reinstitute the temple sacrifice. That would mean, obviously, a rebuilt temple. Now, halfway through this final week of seven years, which is three and a half years, After the institution of these sacrifices, he'll change course and put an end to those sacrifices. He'll do something abominable at that point. The last half of this verse is very difficult to translate. We don't know what he'll do, but he will magnify himself above all things. We can get a little more insight when we look at uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. It says, who, and that's talking about the man of lawlessness, The man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. In Matthew 24, Jesus warns us about this event and says that this event 
marks the beginning of the great tribulation. Matthew 24:15 Jesus says, "So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, right? Spoken of by Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetop not go down and take what's in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak." And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not come in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So the great tribulation will be as bad as it can be. But then the end comes and Jesus puts an end to this impersonator. The end of verse 27 back in Daniel says, The Antichrist will reign until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. God will bring perfect and ultimate justice. God will conquer evil once and for all. Now, I hope you've understood what I said today. (laughs) But I have taxed your brain. We've done math. We've looked at prophecy. What do we need to walk away with? What do we need to learn today to apply in our life today? Well, God has a plan for the salvation of his people. He, through the work and sacrifice of his son, provided a solution for our sin. Rebellion against God is the highest offense that there is. You know, we want to excuse sin, but when we see who God is and we see who we are, we need to realize that any and all sin is cosmic treason against our Creator. We need to take sin very seriously because God takes it very seriously. God is not a kindly old grandpa. (laughs) He is unfathomably righteous and holy. That's the picture we need to have of God. I beg you not to stand before Him in judgment. I heard a great analogy this week. It said that you standing before God in your own merit and your own righteousness to be judged would be like a piece of tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. It wouldn't last. It would disintegrate. We can't face a holy God by ourselves. We have to have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you see from this prophecy the fulfillment that God knows exactly what he's doing? (laughs) He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows the moment of your death. Now he is graciously extending to you on purpose by his plan the opportunity right now to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. He knows the instant you're going to die and he put you here today to make sure that you heard the offer of the gospel before you meet Him. Has it occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? He knows what He's doing. He planned this. He is graciously extending to you right now the opportunity to be saved. Saved from what though? We hear that, right? We say, saved from what? Saved from judgment of God. Saved from standing before a holy and righteous God in our sins. 
you can be credited with a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that is not yours, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can have your sins transferred to Jesus' account where they were paid for in full on the cross. Now look, Catherine sang a beautiful song that I love, and I've asked her to sing before, Not Guilty. And that is good news. But there's even better news. Not only can we be found not guilty, we can be found innocent and even righteous because of having Christ's righteousness applied to me. That's great news. And it's news that you need to take advantage of. 